This is Howard Anderson, news editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're discussing post-breach communications strategies with attorney Ron Rather. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ron. My pleasure. How a company communicates in the wake of a major breach incident can play a major role in maintaining the organization's reputation and minimizing the financial impact of a breach. I'd like to go over some of the do's and don'ts for post-breach public relations efforts based on your experience in advising clients that have experienced breaches. So let's start with the do's. What are the essential components of a successful post-breach communication strategy? Well, the first place to start is with defining the goals. Traditionally in uh, media management, the goal has been to control the message, uh, to control uh, what happens in print media and on television. Uh, in data breach response instances, uh, I believe that the goal really ought to be to satisfy the audience, uh, to provide sufficient information so that, you know, number one, the reputation of the company is maintained, and then number two, to mitigate or prevent any uh, litigation or uh, government investigations that could uh, harm the business operations of the company. Uh, so keeping uh, that goal in mind, the place to always begin is to collect the facts and understand the breach. Uh, it's especially important to understand and identify who all is affected because in turn you're going to develop your messaging around uh, who those individuals are that need to be communicated with uh, and satisfied. It's important to identify all the relevant audiences, both internal and external, uh, which can include uh, government agencies as well as the consumers uh, that need to be notified and the employees that interact uh, with them. It's important to decide on a message uh, to be consistent with that message, and most importantly, uh, to make certain that you have a complete and thorough understanding of the facts so that you subsequently don't have to correct uh, a misstatement uh, or provide inconsistent information that can undermine the credibility you're trying to develop uh, with the intended audience. It's also important to identify the best means of communication. Uh, that can vary depending on the audience uh, in uh, cases I've been involved in, we've used everything from uh, emails and letters to actually picking up the phone and calling uh, who we uh, expected to be influencers uh, within the affected consumer community. But make sure to pick uh, the best means of communication uh, for the group that you're dealing with, which can include social media. That's important not to forget about uh, social media as we uh, have a tendency to traditionally focus on print media and television, uh, the Internet and social media now uh, is of greater importance, uh, in my opinion, uh, than uh, traditional print and, and television. Uh, and make sure that uh, everyone who may have contact uh, with the audience, uh, i.e., either the consumer or the government, uh, investors, whomever that audience is uh, that's likely to raise questions about the breach, uh, to make sure that they all understand what's happened and have the uh, messaging that you've developed, whether it be in bullets or frequently asked questions, that they have uh, access uh, to that or know uh, someone within the company to refer the inquiry to so that it's uh, responded to quickly. Okay, so what are the don'ts to avoid? What mistakes do many companies make when communicating after a major breach, do you think? And the biggest ones are uh, not being proactive, uh, number one, and then number two, not having a full grasp of the facts regarding the breach uh, before they begin making communications with the intended audience. 
Uh, it's important to develop credibility with the audience to reassure them that the company has a grasp of what happened uh, and has implemented processes and procedures to control or mitigate against any further harm and inconsistencies in the message obviously undermined that. It's also important to have a message that doesn't generate a belief on behalf of the audience that you're trying to hide the ball to provide them incomplete truths. Uh, I've found that providing limited legalistic or formulaic responses uh, actually undermine and inhibit uh, the accomplishment of the goal of, of trying of, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so it's important to be as complete as possible. There's obviously some uh, restrictions in terms of uh, how much you can tell uh, the general audience, uh, i.e. the consumers, about how the breach occurred or, more importantly, what steps the company is taking uh, to prevent future breaches uh, because that detail can in and of itself inhibit uh, the security of the company. But providing as much information as possible is important. It's also important to provide a process that doesn't frustrate the consumer. Um, so just providing a website uh, or a letter without uh, some ability for the consumer to speak to a live person uh, I found that uh, that's ineffective. It's good to have a call center, uh, some individual uh, who's ready to talk with the consumer live and directly, and ignoring certain audiences. Uh, in other words, focusing on uh, what the company may think is important, for example, print media or TV media, uh, ignore, and ignoring uh, bloggers, uh, social media, privacy advocates. That can turn around and backfire on the company if they don't pay attention to all the audiences. Uh, that are going to be interested in the breach. So what insights can you provide on how to determine the best timing of a press or investor briefing, a press release, or other communications efforts, and who should be the face of the organization in any formal communications? Timing can be pretty tricky. So the uh, intent is to uh, help uh, satisfy uh, the audience, uh, provide them the information uh, without creating the story or creating a media buzz. So timing really depends on uh, the type of the case, the audience at issue. In a high publicity uh, breach, you may want to reach out to uh, someone in the local media, uh, whether it be newspaper reporter in the hometown of the company or uh, somebody who is active in the blogosphere on this particular issue and give them a heads up even before you send the notice out. Of course, after you send the notice out, uh, you're going to want to have uh, an individual uh, ready who's going to be able to handle any inquiries from the press, deal with investor questions and the like. I've also in the past reached out to regulators, um, attorney generals before the notice letter went out, not only to give them a heads up as to what was going on, but also in some instances have them review the notice letter and bless it uh, before it goes uh, to the consumers. Uh, in terms of the face uh, of the company, and the normal premise is to have a single face. That doesn't always work depending on the complexity of the situation. Given the potential for publicity uh, and the various media uh, that might be involved, that also affects the decision. Uh, what I found is uh, that whoever the spokesperson being, it could be that you have one for consumers affected by the breach, you have another for the media, you have another for government regulators and even another for investors. Uh, that could be the same person. That could be multiple people. But the common traits you want in, uh, in that individual or individuals is that they're trusted by the audience, uh, that they have some experience in speaking and interacting with that audience, 
uh, and that they also have the skills to handle difficult questions. You know, how they how experienced they are uh, with the expected medium, of course, will be important as well. Should companies generally partner with a breach resolution firm or a public relations firm to help them with their post-breach communication following a large breach? What do you think? You know, I think it both depends on the circumstances as well as the uh, knowledge and experience of people who work within the company. Um, so, for example, a company that is used to doing direct mailing may not necessarily need to hire a third party uh, to do the mailing. Uh, likewise, a company that has a well-established public uh, relations uh, department, uh, government affairs department, investor affairs department may not need to hire a third party. Uh, however, I have found that even with companies that have a well-developed uh, group of individuals in each of those disciplines, uh, it may still be necessary to hire a third party simply because of bandwidth issues. In other words, those individuals have their day-to-day -day job uh, when you add the uh, level of work that's required for responding to a breach, uh, it often surpasses what they're capable of doing individually, and so bringing in a third party helps provide uh, needed resources. Of course, if the company doesn't have people experience in those disciplines, then it's essential to bring in third parties uh, who can not only bring in their level of knowledge and experience in handling each of these communications, but also have developed relationships uh, with individuals, for example, in the AG's office or at the local newspaper or at a national newspaper to help uh, influence and control the messaging. In my experience, it's been about 50-50 uh, in terms of when we hire uh, third parties to help with communication issues. And, of course, another influencer in that is the likelihood that the breach is going to gain uh, some type of media interest. Finally, what else can we learn from recent post-breach communications efforts of companies in the financial services and healthcare sectors as well as other sectors? What do you think? Well, I think there's a, a number of interesting breaches that have happened lately that sort of spell out some of the points that I've made earlier. Uh, you know, the Sony PS3 announcement, for example, uh, which uh, initially in April of 2011, they um, announced that there were 75 million people Affected. They then later had to announce that another 25 million uh, were affected. It would have helped, uh, I think, that uh, in their communications with the media, uh, if they had let uh, everyone know that the investigation was still ongoing. Uh, likewise, uh, with Hannaford, uh, in that that's been a, a while back, but in that case, uh, they used a single letter to. Uh, notify the consumers and in their media statements uh, suggested that it was a single event. Uh, Hannaford, you may know, was involved in a lawsuit where the first Circuit Court of Appeals found standing. They found standing because uh, there were about 700, 800 consumers that had actually been victimized by identity theft. If Hannaford had split up uh, that communication program into two separate groups, in other words, sending one form of notice to the 800 and a different form of notice to the other 4 million, uh, they could have mitigated some of their exposure uh, in the subsequent litigation. Uh, the most recent example involves global payments, uh, which announced in January of this year uh, that there was a breach. Uh, they did some good things. Uh, for example, they put together uh, what I think was a pretty good website that 
provided information to both affected consumers and investors. Um, the one thing on the website, it's not clear to me how often it's been updated, uh, and I also can't tell how effective it's been in uh, preventing its customers, uh, i.e. merchants, um, from no longer using its services. Um, but even with global payments, the information that was provided by global payments was inconsistent with the information provided uh, to the public by Visa. And I think that inconsistency uh, in the messaging uh, hurt uh, global payments both in the media and in the public eye. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking today with Ronald Rather, partner at the law firm Faruqi, Ireland, and Cox. This is Howard Anderson. Thanks so very much for listening.